0: passage today is from Amos 1.1 1, 1, and chapter 7, 10 through 17. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, the vision he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake, when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent a message to Jeroboam, king of Israel, Amos is raising a conspiracy against you in the very heart of Israel. The land cannot bear all his words. For this is what Amos is saying. Jeroboam will die by the sword, and Israel will surely go into exile, away from their native land. Then Amaziah said to Amos, Get out, you seer. Go back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there and do, not do your prophesying there. Don't prophesy any more at Bethel, because this is the king's sanctuary and the temple of the kingdom. Amos answered Amaziah, I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I was a shepherd, and I also took care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Now then, hear the word of the Lord. You say, Do not prophesy against Israel and stop preaching against the descendants of Isaac? Therefore, this is what the Lord says, your wife will become a prostitute in the city, and your sons and daughters will fall by the sword. Your land will be measured and divided up, and you yourself will die in a pagan country, and Israel will surely go into exile away from their native land. Thanks, Dan.
1: So we conclude our series on Amos today, and I wanted to to bring it down to the Personal level of Amos and who he was and where he was at within the nation of Israel. Around Christmas time, and I, I think I've told our house church this story, but around Christmas time, our, our neighbors across the street that we've been getting to know since we moved into the neighborhood about five years ago, um, they invited us over um, for what would have been a winter solstice party, and it was. Uh, it's just a small group of people, but Ann and I got there first, and um, we uh, sat. At, we're sitting around uh, a fire in the backyard, and um, they have a uh, a ritual that they go through that um, is significant for them. They um, have no formal religious affiliation. Our neighbors across the street, they're they're. Uh, Probably in their sixties, they're great friends of ours. We really love uh, we really love them, um, and um, so they invited us over, and we're sitting around the fire. And then they 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 take a log and they they throw it in the fire, and it's and it's uh, burning um, is is a is a is a symbol of kind of. Um, putting in your old life, putting in the things that you want to see um, kind of removed or cleansed from your life. And then there's a, a, uh, a sense of a, of, a, of, a, of a rebirth and of a, a coming alive again in this uh, ritual that they go through. So they gave us a log and we throw our logs in. And, and so we ask them, you know, what, is this, what does this mean specifically for you? And, and, um, and then they asked us, what, is, you know, what, is, what do these ideas mean for you? What is Christmas time and this season? And, and, um, and, and it was a way then I said, you know what? We, we have um, a similar aspiration in that we believe that there is a future rebirth. There is a future resurrection and that there is hope for the, the cleansing of our lives, the putting off of the things that destroy us, and the, the coming alive uh, again in a new world. And we, and we believe that this is true because of the, of the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, and so we got to talking a little bit, and we had had a conversation um, earlier in the year um, where he made a comment about the doctrine of original sin. He had gone to a Christian campus uh, for college, and, um, but it wasn't really, you know, very strict or overtly uh, Christian, it's just kind of a part of the tradition, but they had chapels and things like that, and they had to take Bible and theology classes. And he said, you know, once I came into a contact or an understanding of the doctrine of original sin, that was the beginning and the end of my pursuit of Christianity. And so I, I asked him about that comment, not at the time, but at this, at this uh, solstice party. I said, you know, what did you mean by uh, original sin, and why did that really offend you? And so we got to talking about it. Then he, then he um, asked me what I thought of the doctrine of original sin. And so, you know, there's, you start getting into a lot of historical weight, around doctrines and, and what did he mean by that? And so I explained what we understood to be sin was and how it affects all of humanity. And, and, um, and then we got to talking and, and, I, and he, he was still trying to, I, I think he'd pinpointed us, but I, but I got to a place where I was trying to explain where we fit, where we fit in the Christian landscape. And I must have used the word evangelical, um, but, but kind of hesitant around that. Uh, you know, this is post-election. And, um, and he goes, and he stopped me. He goes, Ge- George, I get it. I get it. I've got a brother who's, a, who's an evangelical. Now, he's one of these thinking evangelicals, not one of those new earth types. And he kind of went on and on. And, you know, and I, we, had to, we had to leave not too long after that, but that, that stuck in my mind. Um, Tim Keller wrote an article that was published in The New Yorker this past December um, called, Can Evangelicalism Survive Donald Trump and Roy Moore? And it was, it was an article... Kind of tracing the history of our modern sense of the word evangelical and the difficulty that um, a lot of contemporary evangelicals have being labeled or understood or identifying with evangelicalism. 80%, it is kind of reported that 80% of those who claim to be evangelical. Um, voted for Donald Trump, and the challenge that evangelicals have had in the last year and a half or so is just a lot of the the moral dilemmas that have arisen because of the affiliation with of evangelicalism with the uh, with the Republican Party and the presidency of Donald Trump, and a lot of these other. Um, political figures who have uh, demonstrated less than stellar moral lives. Now, none of us are perfect, Um, absolutely. And we all have to affirm the gospel, but the leaders of our people should reflect the moral requirements of the teachings and the laws of of our country. Now, this isn't... um, I am not trying to make any sort of of political statement here, it's just the reality of where we find ourselves as, quote, evangelicals. Um, But one of the things that I um, appreciated from the article um, is that it, it gave some history of the idea of, of evangelicalism and that evangelicalism has always been a term, uh, an idea that has come out of movements within the broader mainstream Christianity that has reflected uh, a, a more intense desire to be sincere and truthful to the, to the biblical mission and the call of Jesus. And one of the things that, that Tim Keller brings out in this article is that uh, evangelicalism, as we understand it now, and those who identify with it now, is not what it used to be. And I want to show you this map. And so they, uh, the people that put this, this study together, LifeWay Research, which is a really um, vigilant uh, research and statistics organization and polling organization. And so they, they asked people in these four regions of the United States if they identified as evangelical. And then they asked if they affirmed what would be considered um, historically understandable evangelical tenets, faith tenets, Bible tenets, not anything related to politics. And so here's what they found. So in the Midwest, where we're at, almost 30% of, of the Midwest identifies themselves as evangelical. But only half of that, 15%, affirm what would be the standard theological faith tenets of what historical evangelicalism is. And I'm not talking about, you know, peripheral issues. We're talking about the deity of Jesus Christ, the need for a personal conversion, you know, basic things. So 30% identifies evangelical, but only 15% are actually theolo- evangelical by belief. Uh, in the West, it's about the same in terms of percentages, 18% and half of that actually evangelical by belief. The South, 31%. Uh, 23% by belief, and in the Northeast, 13% identify, but only 5% by belief. And so, if we look at the, if if this research is accurate, um, evangelicalism is not evangelicalism. Evangelical movements have always been perennial and recurring. It's never been a static thing, but the challenge that we have at this time is that uh, we're not known as the Lutherans, okay, it's because the the reformers at Luther's time considered themselves an evangelical movement, all right? They were still Catholic, but they were within, they were called evangelical, and it was a, it was a long time before L- Lutheran came on the scene as a formal designation, and Protestant, okay? So, Right now, we have this movement that's been identified formally as evangelical. So it kind of st- it, it, the t- the term has kind of been stolen from this 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 idea of a of a dynamic movement of zealous biblical Christianity. Evangelicalism has always had a characteristic of being more consistent in core Christian values than Christian mainstream, more in a call to conversion, more honoring of Jesus Christ, more holiness in life, more Bible knowledge. But now that evangelicalism has become a formal political label and less an understanding of core belief and practices, we should not, first of all, be surprised at the skepticism around us but it also, I think, communicates the challenge that we have in our time uh, to being a, a, an evangelical witness to the world. I mean, my communication with my neighbor, and I'm thankful that he's got a brother who's an evangelical because he understands it. He calls him a thinking evangelical, and they have a great relationship. And so we just keep praying and keep striving to be witnesses. Um, but it, the the tension inside of me was real, and my guess is is that's not something unique to me. Is that so, it's probably something that that we experience uh, all of us as a church when we are relating to our our friends, our neighbors, our classmates, our coworkers, when we are trying to um, communicate who we are and who Jesus is and what the Bible calls them to, but not yet wanting to identify uh, with what has become a political label. And so it's not not a a situation um, that is unlike Amos' time. So as we've looked throughout the book of Amos, we've spent nine weeks on it, Uh, we we know that there has been this there's been religious zeal, but it's not been biblical following of God. It hasn't been the the Mosaic covenant according to Scripture. It's been another religion with the with kind of a facade of of biblical religion. So our our time I think is is pretty similar to Amos' time. Where there's this there's this name. Okay, of of Christian this name of evangelical, but its substance is increasingly moving away from uh, what in what is in reality the biblical faith. Uh, one of the commentaries I'm reading, uh, the author Shalom Paul, describes this time in Amos's life and this time of Israel, at the time, Israel at the time of Amos, as as Israel's silver age. He says, Israel reached the summit of its material power and economic prosperity as well as the apogee of its territorial expansion, comparable only to the era of David and Solomon, the golden age. And so here you have, you have Israel, like the United States, in, in a place of pretty significant economic Prosperity. And then the reports on Friday came out and it said that, that uh, the, the labor market is, quote, on fire. Wages are a little slow in coming up to it, but a lot of people are working. There's a lot of economic prosperity in the United States. Um, there is a lot of economic prosperity in American Christianity, American evangelicalism even. But yet the substance of our faith, like Israel in the time of Amos, is increasingly challenged. They were successful at the time in military victories in the expansion of their territory. In the expansion of their territory, there was thriving commerce and trade. There was an affluent society composed of small, a small wealthy upper class, and so there was increasing income disparity. Again, similar to what we're experiencing here in the United States. Characterized by luxurious lifestyles, expansive building projects, and a civic religion that exalted their affluence. Okay, there's a lot of money in their worship. There's a lot of money in their worship facilities, a lot of money in all of the accoutrements around their worship. A lot of religion and a lot of zeal, but it was a part of their idolatry. It lacked the substance of biblical religion. And so God calls Amos up out of this time. And there's a great passage in chapter 5 that I'm going to put here on the board that kind of describes what it was like living in Israel at the time of Amos as somebody who was trying to live a, a truthful biblical life. They hate him, chapter 5, verses 10 through 13. They hate him who reproves in the gate. And they abhor him who speaks the truth. And so there's this, there's this um, antagonism against the truth, the public proclamation or the public presence of truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes from gra- of grain from him, You have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time." And that last verse, therefore he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time for it is an evil time. Sometimes we feel like being silent because we, it's hard to know what to say. It's hard to know what our neighbors and friends and families are going to think in, about us if we are vigilant in our communication and witness of the truth of the Gospel, not just because of the challenge and the offense of the Gospel, which is weighty enough, but what is increasingly a a politicized environment to where it is difficult to separate Biblical Christianity from politics. And, And what is perceived in culture? as evangelicalism and what in reality is evangelical. And so it's different now. I mean, in the early 90s, when I was in college and living in the dorms, um, you didn't have this spirit of the time. It was, it, was, it was coming, but even in the mid-2000s, it was fundamentally different than in the, in the early 90s. You could share the gospel and talk about faith in Jesus Christ and there wasn't anything related to politics around it. But it's changed. I could could share the gospel frequently and see fruit, but it's changed. It's changed. The the time that it takes to build trust now into people where where they know you, they know you're sincere. They know that you're for their good. They know that you care about them and have this witness about Jesus, okay? It takes a lot longer to build that trust because of the suspicion around what it means to hold on to a, a radical evangelical faith. And I think that this, again, is, the, is, a similar, is similar to the time that, that of Israel in, in the life of Amos. So let's look at Amos a little bit. Now, Amos was not a professional prophet. They had professional prophets. They had schools of prophets. And if you read the books of First and Second Kings, you'll see that there are these, like Elijah and Elisha, and they had a crowd of prophets around them. There, were, there was a group of, of people that were prophets. This was not Amos. Amos was a fig dresser and a shepherd. Now, a fig dresser, this was interesting. Um, in order for them to maximize the uh, productivity of figs, they would have to go out and they would have to, um, they, would, they call it scraping. And they still do it today. You scrape the figs, And it it does two things. It increases the, uh, uh, it it, it shortens the time that they need to ripen. And it also releases this substance that's a, a natural pesticide and so that the figs aren't eaten by bugs. And so for centuries, this has been the way of harvesting and taking care of dressing figs. So he was one of these guys that literally scraped figs. And he also kept cattle and sheep and, and goats. Not a professional guy. And if you, if, if you, uh, you know, as, as, as Dan read and you were reading um, this morning, he, he literally was, was tending to his crops and to his animals when God called him out of that circumstance. And so after some time of prophesying in Israel, the prophet, excuse me, not the prophet, but the priest in, in Bethel. And so when the, two nation, when the nation of Israel divided into Judah and into Israel, the capital of Israel was, was Samaria. And they had to create an alternative um, worship center. And so that, that alternative worship center was, was Bethel. All right, so the priest from Bethel comes. All right, And he says, listen, the people and the king can no longer stand you prophesying. You are a traitor. You're conspiring against the king because you said that the sword is gonna come and kill him and his family. We're not gonna kill you, but we want you to leave. We want you to go to Jerusalem and to Judah and start prophesying there. Go earn your money as a prophet there. And Amos is like, listen, now there is no sign of fear in Amos at all in this book. Now, I'm not saying that he wasn't at times afraid or, or fearful, but you don't get a sign of it. But he, he, he turns around and says to this, this priest from Bethel, listen, this is not what I signed up for. I am not a professional prophet, this is not how I earn my living. I'm a farmer and I'm a shepherd and God told me to come and say these things to you. So here's what's gonna happen to you now, priest from Bethel. You are gonna be carried away into exile and you are going to live and die in an unclean land. So he's the priest, he's supposed to be clean. You are gonna be taken away to an unclean land and you are gonna die there. And your wife is going to be so financially destitute that she's going to become a public prostitute in the city and your kids are going to be killed. Because you came and told me to stop prophesying. You came and told me, to, you came and told me basically uh, to oppose God. And so Amos was in a really challenging place. But he's a regular guy. Not a professional a farmer and a shepherd. And kind of what I want to just draw out today from this, from this passage and to conclude our time is to, is to strengthen us, to strengthen us as witnesses in a really challenging time where suspicion and hypocrisy and identity around who we are is kind of a, a, a big challenge but we all still bear the burden of following Christ and His command to make disciples of the nations. And so I want to look at a few of the qualities of Amos and some of the teachings out of the New Testament that strengthen us to this work of being a witness. First of all, Amos demonstrated a clear awareness of his calling. He he didn't have a choice. It's not like he was raised up as a prophet in the school of prophets and trained as a prophet and then some of those prophets were opposed to the to the true God and to the true word and to the true prophets and so sometimes even the school of prophets wasn't a great place to be. Amos was a was a shepherd and a farmer and God came and spoke to him directly. So he was really clear on his calling, obviously. And he knew what he had to do. And he knew what he had to say and to who he needed to say it to. And so similarly, we have a calling and God has been pretty clear in his, in his admonition and encouragement and instruction to us to be witnesses of him. Some of us are gonna be, quote, paid for professionals, But those paid for professionals, those who are vocational ministers, are called to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. At the end of the book of Colossians, which we've studied very thoroughly, it is clear that Paul is expecting that our transformed lives of glory are going to be of such wisdom and beauty to the watching world that we are going to get inquiries. We're going to get inquiries into our lives. Peter says, always be ready to explain the hope that is within you. They're going to see a hope in our lives in the midst of a world that is increasingly hopeless. And so there's the expectation there that we are to be able and ready to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people around us. We are instructed to pray. We are instructed to pray for open doors for the gospel, open doors for the ministry of Paul. And I think by example, Paul is saying, be praying for open doors in in the lives of the people around you for you to be able to witness the gospel and to share Jesus with them. So there's a, there's a clarity of calling, there's a prayerfulness. And Paul says in Philippians chapter one that his example of being a witness for the gospel in the context of being imprisoned has created a boldness in the church in Philippi for them to be more active in sharing the gospel with the people around them. And so it is indeed going to take courage You know, I've waited for just opportunities with, with, with my neighbors and friends, and it's neighbors across the street in particular. And just, you know, I'm, there's fear. There's hesitation and anxiety. There's prayer God, please give me the boldness. Please create an open door. But there is fear and anxiety. But when you're in those circumstances, you know when you have an opportunity you know when you have an opportunity and it takes courage it takes courage we're going it's going to we're going to have to speak against sin at least and we're going to have to speak against unbelief and we're going to have to speak against deception you know so part of the conversations that we're getting into now are are the reliability of the of the New Testament gospels and their dating you know, so now I'm rereading some books that I read years ago um, around the reliability of the Gospels. It's kind of fun. Amanda's taken a New Testament class about Jesus down at St. Down at Olaf, uh, and she's reading on the same things that I'm reading, so we're trading books back and forth. She's studying about the, the dating and eyewitnesses around the Gospels and their reliability and the, and the witness of the Scriptures in regard to the person of Jesus, These are are not just academic things. People have questions in their mind, especially with the proliferation of some of the stuff that's out there, particularly from Bart Ehrman and other people who just seem to have as their goal the, the, the tearing down of biblical Christianity. And so that's what we're talking about. That's what we're talking about. And it is not easy. It's not easy for me. I don't think it's ever been easy for anybody to be a witness of Jesus Christ and a witness of the gospel. There is always the threat of rejection and far worse. Paul instructs us to have speech characterized by grace and wisdom. Grace, our communication of the gospel, our lives around non-Christians should be characterized by the truth and the beauty of the song that we sang this morning, that, that, that God has entered a world and He is separating our sin. As far as the east is from the west, making us white as snow. And that is the message that we have for the people of this world. I I shared last week with a little bit of, you know, again, something that I don't regularly do and I really strive to to not do it unless there's a clear sense of the Lord's leading. But a few weeks ago, sharing the gospel on the the airplane home from Arkansas uh, with a guy. And we just got into a conversation and tried as as hard as I could. I couldn't, we just, the conversation was going to happen. God was going to see to it. And he just asked me in the point of the conversation, you know, why did you become a minister? And I just explained to him. I just, I said, you know what? And it wasn't an academic witness. It was just my life. I said, the experience of the cleansing from my guilt and my shame when I came to an understanding of the gospel, was so profound that I could not, this is what I had to give my life to. Now, and I think that this is what God calls all of us to give our lives to. We have different vocations, different callings, different contributions that we make to to this great world that God has created. And God is using us all in important ways to keep everything going. Okay, the Scriptures teach that Jesus sustains and holds everything together, all right? And He does that through all of the people that are at work to keep us alive as humanity. So whether we're vocational ministers or not, we are, we are all called to this work of Jesus Christ and to be witnesses to the, to the beautiful and glorious gospel. And it should be characterized by, by grace and by wisdom. And I think by wisdom, the, the idea is skill There should be a skillfulness that comes along with prayer and really getting to know the people that we are praying for and need to witness to. And lastly, he says, make the most of your time. This is the section on on our life with outsiders. Make the most of your time. And he hasn't said this at any time before. And you get the sense that The strategic use of our time with outsiders um, is is to be a priority. And there needs to be some devotion in our time. We we all have very busy lives. But we set out time and we set out money for things that are important to us. And I believe Paul's instructing us, be very careful in how you spend your time with outsiders. You should be spending time with outsiders. And when you're with outsiders, be thoughtful, be wise, be gracious, be careful. It's, in t- it's an intentional use of our time. Now, that doesn't mean that it always… Ha- it, it needs to be fun. It took us a long time to build up our… our our reputation and, and the respect and trust of our neighbors around us. Four years after we're living there, my neighbor, same guy, invited, invited me into his 18-year-long monthly poker game with about a half a dozen guys. Well, it took him four years to get to the point where he feel, felt like he could bring me into that group of people and I wouldn't, I don't know, be strange as an evangelical pastor. Who knows? Four years. Four years. We had him over for dinner, uh, and he said, and I've shared this before, he said, you know, they said, you know, this is the first time anybody in the neighborhood in 26 years has had us in their home, 26 years. It takes a long time in this culture to to get to the point where our our neighbors trust us, our friends trust us, which brings me to... uh, this last point in regard to being a witness, it takes some strategy. It takes some strategy. I have a, I have a friend um, that uh, is director of a of a missionary training and sending organization, and Lawrence and I were down at a small conference that uh, my friend was speaking at a couple weeks ago, about a month ago now, and he has a, a process that he trains. Missionaries And these missionaries are being sent into places where there's not a gospel ter- testimony. And he has an eight-phase eight process. But the first few phases are the ones that I want to look at today. He's got a strategy in being a witness. The first part of the first phase is arrival. All right, so whether you're moving into a new place that you've flown halfway across the world for or it's your neighborhood, or your work, or your school, whatever it might be. You arrive. You arrive. How, how are you going to present yourself as an arrival? How are you going to present yourself in a place? And it needs to be that you are showing people that you're there and that you care for them. Second thing, trust. Building trust through actions and words. So you've arrived, you're there, and you're going to start showing that you love them. This is what Jesus did. All of his miracles, his feeding, his healing, these were things that were expressing his care. He's there, he's among them, and he loves them. If we're going into circumstances and situations with those that are not of the faith and that we're just thinking of sharing the gospel with them as soon as we can, that's not the way of Jesus It's not the way of Jesus. Third thing, you're going to have spiritual conversations. Not gospel conversations yet, but spiritual conversations. How are they thinking about God? How are they thinking about the afterlife? How are they thinking about their own history? How are they thinking about our culture? How are they thinking about evangelicalism, other religions? Get to know them. Listen to them. Ask them questions. And eventually you get to a point where you can share and communicate the gospel to them. This might take years. And so I wanted to share this with you all because I think that it gives us some grace. And I think it, it gives us a, a platform of developing uh, relationships and trust to the point where we experience what, what the New Testament seems to assume. People are going to be attracted to you and you're going to have opportunities to answer questions that they have. And it's a lot easier <laughs> to share the gospel in that way. It doesn't mean it's still not going to take courage. It's going to take courage. But it's, it's so much easier to do when you know that there's a friendship, that there's been a mutual exchange of, of care and love and concern as, as friends, as true neighbors, and so then you're communicating in this context of, of grace and of love and of trust. Um, and that regardless of what you say, you're still going to be friends, you're still going to be neighbors, and you're still going to care for one another. And so if we come back around to, to really one of the prominent themes that we've had, we've looked at this, this cycle of material delight. You know, as, as I said in the first, first sermon, at the end of the book of Amos, there's this presentation of of a coming king who's going to come and pour out material blessing and prosperity on the nation of Israel. And that material blessing and prosperity has always been a central feature of God's promises to humanity as a motivation for them to follow Him. But the circle of, of material delight, to receive with, from God with humility all of the material things we have, food, clothing, shelter, and a whole host of things that we don't need but really do enjoy. We have to be in a place of receiving those from God in a place of humility, recognizing that it's not us, but that all things indeed are from God. Then we then have the ability to enjoy with gratitude. And the, and the, and the fullness of our joy can, is, is multiplied and fulfilled, when we then are generous in sharing with others what we have. But let me tell you, people can't experience this outside of God. So the fullness of our ability to enjoy what, who God is and what He has done for us and how He blesses us, not only materially, but spiritually, The fullness of our experience of God can only come if if we are not just sharing what He's blessed us with in a material way, but we are sharing what He has blessed with us through Jesus Christ. And that is where the Gospel really presses us. Are we really going to believe that my life is going to be more full and complete and blessed and fulfilled not only through the material things that God blesses with me, but when I take the step of courage and boldness and obedience and belief in the gospel that sharing that testimony of Jesus is going to be the fullest expression of my experience of of God's blessing and in what it means to share it. We have to... that, That has to be at the core... In our, in, our, in, our, in our daily work, in our, in our meeting of pressing needs. You know, uh, uh, Alex and Chris and, and those of you that have adopted and are looking to adoption, and those of you that are meeting a lot of the other pressing needs in our world, widows and the poor, or the homeless, there's a lot of ways to meet pressing needs. But the fullness of those expressions in meeting pressing needs... Is going to come alongside of the living out of and the witness, the verbal witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ, because that's the whole package. That's the whole package. And so it, the gospel calls us to this. It calls us to this because the gospel is telling us to believe that Jesus Christ Himself has the fullness of life and that to to, to fully enter into the fullness of life that Jesus provides, we have to enter into a a trusting posture of being witnesses, even in a challenging, suspicious, hypocrisy-filled age. Let me pray.